Welcome to The Well. I'm Anson Mount. I am Brandon Edgens. And we are here with Jax the Wonder Dog, taking a walk around the property I just purchased. And uh, what do you think so far? It is a big, beautiful property. Truly, yeah. truly beautiful. It's amazing, man. Yeah, it's some really nice trees. And unfortunately, Brandon informed me yesterday that the beavers in my beaver pond have have cut and run. They've absconded. <laughs> well, because all because we've cut down all the trees around here. We're, I mean, you know, whoever built this place cut down all the trees, and now, you know, what are the beavers going to eat, man? So, and it's, they left behind a huge dam. It's yeah. almost like a land bridge. Yeah, and the remnants of their lodge. The lodge is still kind of in the middle of the little beaver pond over there. But yeah, it's all kind of, it's all got stuff growing up in it now, so you can see it's been abandoned for a while. Yeah, and we just wanted to play for you an extra bit of tape that we had from our interview with Todd Komanicki that we thought was worth listening to. It's about Todd's concept of self-discipline as an artist, and we thought he had an interesting take on it. So we're going to play that for you, and uh, while you're listening, we're going to keep walking, and then uh, we'll let you know what we find yeah. at the end. Mm-hmm. See you, on the, see you on the other side. <laughs> I always like I always like to go to the Orson Welles quote about writing, which is the desire to write, followed by a lack of writing, is the desire to not write. Mm. Mm. I, I also love um, winning back the word discipline. And again, since we we talked so long ago, um, I don't remember if we talked about this, but somebody sent me a tape of my last talk because I did a talk about like for an hour in Pennsylvania, maybe two weeks ago, and and this notion came up, which I don't talk about all the time, but I love this word, and it is related to faith in a, in a sideways way. But when we talk about the arts, and we talk about uh, raising children, we talk about getting in shape, we always come back to this word discipline. And it's always punitive mm-hmm. or pejorative, or um, just like a shackle. Mm-hmm. If I could just be more disciplined, if I could just rally my personal strength and discipline, 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 discipline. And um, so I'm trying to reclaim the word. So guess what it comes from? It comes from disciple. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And the word disciple doesn't mean lift a bunch of weights in the garage. <laughs> the word disciple means to follow. So for me, as a Christian, that means my discipline should be one thing, which is to follow Christ and get my strength from there and then let that impact every single thing in my life. Let it guide you. Let it, let it guide me. That's, that's the, the driving thing, follow. There's a, a, great, a great moment in, um, in the Gospels. My buddy Craig Mays told me this, and I just love it so much. Great moment in the Gospels where Peter has met Jesus for the first time, and Jesus says to Peter, um, let down your nets. It's morning time. And Peter says, uh, we're not going to catch anything. I'm a fishing expert. We fish at night. We're all done. There was nothing. And uh, Peter says the following words. And I just met the guy. And he says, but because you say so, I will. So imagine the authority that was coming off. No matter what you believe about Jesus, mm-hmm. there was something resonating. It was like, okay, I'll do it. So he throws down the nets and they're so heavy they can't pull them up. And they got all these fish. And 
Peter essentially says, this is amazing. We are going to go into business together. <laughs> we are going to be Peter and friends. And we're going to open the biggest fisher. We're going to kill it. We're going to like... So for Peter, the moment of meeting Jesus is the height of his personal acclamation, whatever his dream was. Now he's fulfilled personally. Mm-hmm. And he's got a plan. And Jesus screws it up by saying two words, follow me. Mm-hmm. Leave your nets. Follow me. So that's a, that's a beautiful thing. I find it very freeing to have that be a central truth for me. But if someone doesn't feel a connection to that, follow me is still the way through in, in art. Because if you show up and you have a blank page, if you're, if you're worried about getting it right, if you're worried about describing a place that you've never been, that no one's ever been, and and controlling, you're you're gonna you're gonna get bounce back. It's almost like uh, one of those light reflectors, except the light's bouncing back up into your eyes. But if you just shut up and you follow whatever the me is, and you just go in and see where it takes you, you can invent worlds that completely blow your mind, and then to dare to do it again and again and again and show up every day totally naked and vulnerable and just say, okay, I'm going to follow, I'm going to follow, I'm going to get out of the way. I think that's where all the, I mean, that's why we have Willem de Koning as, you know, the brilliant painter and, and the Debussy as the brilliant composer and, uh, you know, one artist after another. People that are willing to, to get out of the way and follow. They, they say, follow your muse or whatever, but that following thing is beautiful. And when you do it, then you want to do it all the time. You can't wait to get to work. And then guess what? You have discipline. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I really think that the best artists are the one who have perfected the art of just getting out of the way and admitting to themselves, it's not me. I'm just the conduit for right. something else. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the courageousness to listen to any of the crazy stuff that floats into your system and I've learned that if I just write it down it, <laughs> it leads to something it strengthens that bond to amen. that voice amen yeah. my uncle David is the reason I wrote the first of my three novels I was 25 certainly didn't think I was uh, good enough to write a nut book give myself permission to even start a book or tell someone I was writing a book and we were putting on our coats at New Year's Eve party at my parents house and he looks at me and he was a lifelong raconteur and he said um, have you ever done this have you ever taken a legal pad and drawn a line straight down the middle and then on the left hand side you just start writing you're writing whatever you're thinking it's a memory whatever and as soon as that thought breaks you move over to the right hand side of the paper and then you write something else the new thought whatever it is you write it until it's all gone and then you go back to the original thought I said, well, no, I've never, I've never done that. Um, yeah, of course. But um, I said to him, I said, sort of like a jazz novel. Mm. He said, yeah. No, you riff and you return to the original thing. I tucked that away. And for some reason, two weeks later, I was sitting about to write, working on a movie I was writing. And I looked at the blank legal pad. And I was like, all right, I'm diving in. Let's see what this is. And I drew a line right down the center of the page and at the top I just put jazz in quotes because it was going to be whatever this was was going to be jazz 
And, um, you know, 350 pages later, I'd written a novel, my first novel. What? Yeah. Now, for all you kids out there, this is very important. I wrote it fairly quickly. I mean, I, I probably wrote it in five or six months. And I was convinced that it was, you know, sent from heaven and brilliant and amazing. And I gave it to my sister, my middle sister, Kristen, who was my editor uh, in my, my early part of my career. And she saved my ass. The only, the only reason that I went on to finish that book or write any other books, or maybe even continue in writing, is that she was frank enough to say it was terrible. And I remember sitting with her in Toronto. She was going to University of Toronto and in masters in literature and she had the background and, and she was just undressing this and I was like and inside I'm like oh what a waste of time I mean I love my sister but whoa boy is she wrong and then we're reading certain sections she said well let's just read this out loud and then I'd read it and, and you'd read it out loud and it was so bad ultimately we were in hysterics on the floor <laughs> laughing about how bad certain paragraphs are and for some reason I used the word festival all the time like everything was a festival <laughs> it was like a happiness that, festival it was a spitting take festival take your manhood right away from you <laughs> oh my gosh anyway it was a humiliation festival <laughs> and but she she rescued me so what happened after she gutted this 350 page book is I had 52 pages left uh -huh. and from that that's really the ashes out of which my career grew but it never would happen if she didn't speak truth to some young punk who thought he was better than he was yeah there are a lot of thorns oh god all right <laughs> okay at this right. point for the listeners at home anson is essentially trapped in a thicket of, of thorns and can't figure out which way to go i think we should go that way should go around this way yeah well, this is pretty safe up here nice. yeah all right yeah so what did you think about the way Todd put self-discipline. I thought it was a refreshing look at it. Oh, I thought it was great. I so And I so needed to hear it, you know? Yeah. You know, especially that part about, like, uh, the desire to write followed by not writing is actually expressing desire to not write. <laughs> yeah. I was like, ouch. <laughs> I remember that. And that's been, actually been echoing in my head ever since then. I think about that every day now. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, and as li listening to the first part of it, I... I I realized that it was the kind of conversation that, as an agnostic, I normally would like cringe at. But he, it, Todd has such a great way of expressing his his faith and how it connects to his creativity um, that that it really opened up that story about Peter in a way that I'd never mm -hmm. considered for before. When you know, according to to gospel, that <laughs> the really fun thing about that scene is that you know Christ comes in fixes his fish problem and he thinks oh god that's it and Christ's <laughs> like business now. no that's not it <laughs> you're missing it like it is something else so like drop what just worked and move on to the next thing because it worked and you're done with it right right you right, know which right. in some ways it reminds me we were talking uh -huh. about this last night you know historians uh depict the travel of, of Buddhism having gone through the Middle East around the time of Christ. So there's some argument that, that the young Christ was influenced by, by Buddhist teachings. Mm -hmm. And that story reminded me so much of, you know, that old Buddhist saying, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him, mm -hmm. which 
don't don't literally kill mm-hmm. a person that says that they're Buddha for right. <laughs> you know, but that like the the it means that if you think you've got it pinned down mm-hmm. Buddhism or the thing or whatever that you're missing it. Mm-hmm. As soon as you th- you stuck a pin in it, it stopped f- fluctuating, moving, living like all right. things. And the, and the other way to look at that, you know, kill the Buddha thing is uh, to go with a less sort of draconian sounding <laughs> uh, uh, way of putting it. He's also saying, if you meet the Buddha, great for that person, great for that. That's another person. Like, don't follow them. Mm-hmm. Don't try to be them. Everyone is on a path separately. Right. And once you have decided that you've stopped, you're kind of dead mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah, yeah. Which is, it, and it goes back to my, my you know, the, the reason I am agnostic or, or whatever you want to call it is that my, you know, I just, I, I choose to believe that, that Christ didn't literally mean follow me. He meant follow this thing that mm-hmm. I'm following. Yeah. Yeah, and and bringing and uh, bringing something as sort of diffuse uh, as Buddhism to a culture that was monotheistic obviously confused the hell out of them <laughs> <laughs> because they did not know what to do with that. There was a, yeah. theirs was a top down structure, right. and uh, what do you do when you say like he wasn't saying I am God? He's saying God is in all of us. You're like, so it's in you. No, I meant all of us. So it's in you. <laughs> no, I, well, yes. Yes, it is. So it is in you. Oh, God. I can only imagine, like, how frustrated Jesus was trying to explain this to people. You yeah. Know? And, there's, and there's a moment in, uh, it's my favorite little detail in the Bible, uh, that everyone knows the, he brings the, the prostitutes and, you know, the cast the first stone, that, that whole parable, that whole story. He, there's a moment in the Bible where, they describe Jesus's behavior before he speaks. And he's sitting on the ground and he's drawing in the dirt or in the sand with a stick. <laughs> it doesn't say what he's drawing. It's not really part of the whole story, but that's someone, at least the way I hear it, is that is the behavior of someone who's getting a little tired of going through this again. <laughs> you know, sort of distractedly, like we, we imagine it as like this proclamation, like yet he is without sin, cast the first stone. But it was probably more like, you know what? You know what, buddy? Let he without sin cast the first stone. God, leave me alone. <laughs> You've been through this. God, no one listens to me. And you just said it, the word parable, you know, that like from the way I, what I understand um, that, the we always say you know Jesus taught in parables. Why is that such a a widely known phrase? Mm-hmm. It's because that concept of I'm going to tell you a fictional story mm-hmm. to represent uh, an underlying truth that mm-hmm. was revolutionary. Yeah, at that time, mm-hmm. like people just didn't. It wasn't understood. You know, you're telling us the story, but you're telling us it's a lie, and we're supposed to believe in it at the same time. That doesn't make any sense, you know. And that's another reason that you probably had to practice a lot of patience. But yeah. also, it's related to Buddhist teachings called koan, which mm. are exactly that, and which frequently are told to illustrate some kind of paradox, which is also something a monotheistic culture is not going to be comfortable with. <laughs> you know, like, well, two opposite things can't be true. Well, you, that's the part you got to get your head wrapped around because that is the point. Like, but it's impossible. You know, it make 
very frustrating. It's frustrating for anyone who studies Buddhism and tries to embody that. Yeah. It's always, it's, that's, that's tough yeah. to recognize the truth and opposites. And so much of, you know, the Buddhism cones and stuff are about that, trying to get you comfortable with the fact that two things that are contradictory are both true. Why is it such a nice sound? Like... What, the plane? Yeah, a single prop plane <laughs> in the distance, and there's just nothing else but that and water. Uh, Echoing over the hills. I don't know, I could come up with all kinds of BS right now. <laughs> but I don't know, it's, it's rescue, the sound of rescue? <laughs> start waving. Maybe they're my hills. <laughs> That's true. My hills are echoing. Start, start, start waving, up, jumping up and down, signaling. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess, well, the water, hmm, I get it. I don't, I don't know if you can hear it in this recording, but there's a, a very gentle trickle of water through the Beaver Dam. And it's very, 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 it's that, it's the sound that you pay for, you know, on like meditation videos <laughs> and, or uh, you buy that little goofy uh, Buddha fountain, you know, in Chinatown or on Sharper Image or something that makes a little waterfall. Oh yeah, that's it is, the sound they're yeah, going for. It is that sound, and it's a totally relaxing sound. <sighs> I don't know. I don't know if you remember also that back the first time we interviewed Todd, uh, his daughter Remy mm -hmm. running around in the oh, background. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She was a live wire, oh, and yeah. we just gave up on having uh, decent sound. But then it occurred to us that Remy really wants to be interviewed. So right. at the end there, we did a little interview with Todd's daughter. That I thought it might be nice to end with a bit of that. Yeah. They were teaching what she was talking about, how she was learning about Pompeii. You remember oh, that? Gosh, no, I, I don't. I was like, what a thing to t teach grade schoolers. <laughs> oh, man, they it's love mass that stuff. death. They love that stuff, it, that, which goes, I don't know, because before you get old enough to actually have to seriously uh, contend with mortality, violence is funny until you realize you get older and realize what it means, you know, mm. and you, you've seen enough life to realize that it's really precious and that when something happens to it, it's really terrible. Before that, kids really have a morbid uh, sense of humor. They have a morbid sense of entertainment. I mean, this is why Lewis Carroll said like, oh, he was making up stories for Alice, just improvising. It's like whenever, whenever you're telling stories to children and you feel like you're starting to lose your audience, just decapitate someone. Children love decapitations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> they they go crazy. They start screaming and clapping. Yay! <laughs> you know. Of course, now you're older. It sounds a little more horrific. <laughs> well, we're gonna end with some of that. And I think I think we just lost my wife's dog. Oh, he's disappeared. I hope the beavers didn't get him. <laughs> if they did, they've adopted him. It's a very gentle takeover. All right, we're gonna go find my wife's dog. Jack. See you guys next time. Jack. Jacks. Jax! Um, I haven't been studying it, but I've been reading about it. Pompeii. Pompeii. And what have you been learning about Pompeii? Um, Vesuvius, this volcano erupted in this little town. No, not in, but close to this little town called Pompeii. They, it got destroyed, and people were found... <laughs> by these archaeologists um, and they were wrapped in this cast 
They found um, lots of, they found a dog because he was attached to a chain and he couldn't get out of the eruption. Mm. And there's like a casted dog and like lots of people. That's pretty heavy stuff. Yeah. Should they really be teaching that? And what grade are you in? Third. That's a pretty heavy subject for third grade. And then uh, <laughs> it was just like talking about, it was just talking about like all the things, the, their culture. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna change the subject a little bit. What, what is your favorite thing about Christmas? Once, um, one Christmas when we were in um, Costa Rica, we weren't there for we weren't there for Christmas, and on my Santa list, I asked for a tree, a tree, a tree. And um, when we came back, there was a tree with presents. Mm. He got himself carrots, milk. Sadly, he took my Oreos. Your dad took your Oreos? No, my Santa. Oh, Santa took your Oreos, I see, okay. The Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Brandon Edgens and myself, Anson Mount. The music by Jonathan Myberg. Additional music for this episode was provided by Jason Shaw under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license. Special thanks for this episode go out to Diane Johnston, Dara Mount, Jax the Wonder Dog, Remy Komarnicki, and of course, to Todd Komarnicki. Happy New Year, everybody. Jax, what's up, buddy? Where were you? What were you doing? Did you have fun? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Get it, Jax. Get it. <laughs>